the great uh, Deva, god of the Tavatinsa heaven of the 33, was a disciple of the Buddha, came and questioned the Buddha. And um, he said, Lord Buddha, why do beings wanting peace and harmony, wanting to live in peace and harmony, why do they end up living in conflict and hate? Sincere question. And the Buddha progressively helped him understand what leads to this circumstance that we experience definitely in our world. Conflict and hate. The Buddha talked about that uh, it's envy and stinginess. Wanting what somebody else has got, hanging on to what I got. Saka was happy to reflect on that, but then he thought, but Lord Buddha, what leads to envy and stinginess? And the Buddha talked about like and dislike. When we have what we really like and we want that, and then what we don't like, we don't want that. See that separation that starts to happen? Like and dislike. And then Saka said, but what leads to that? And the Buddha said, desire. And what leads to that? Thinking. And what leads to thinking? And the Buddha said, Papancha Sanya Sankha. Papancha, very important word. In the Buddhist teachings, it means, it means spread out. It means conceptual proliferation. Papancha Sanya Sankha. Sanya means a, a perception. Sankha, a mark. It's a concept. We're talking about concepts here. Related to what I was speaking about last night, concepts tend to concretize, make solid. Things, they constellate things. Well, there's me. How do I know? Well, it's happened to me and I see you. The shortest word in the English language, the easiest one to write, one little stroke, I... Doesn't sound like proliferation to me, Kitty Zorro. That's just a fact. <laughs> but notice we get an I and then suddenly we got a U. Get a here, you got a there. You got a this, and then because every moment things become otherwise, every moment you got to bring time in. It's getting complicated. I, you, here, there, yesterday, tomorrow. When a concept, when a perception, which is as we've been exploring, there's streams of perceptions, streams of sights and sounds and sensations and perceptions and images and feeling tones. Vibrating, swelling, shifting. Yet what comes in there and says, no, 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 that's a me. It's happening to me. And it, that's good, that's what I want. Hey, hey, this is in my way. You're in my way. You got what I should have. Who said you could have that? 
Notice the division. When perception is tainted, colored, touched by the absence of clear seeing, then it concretizes. It's called a sankara. It creates something we do. We create something. And it's reified. It's made real. It seems real to us. It's me. It's you. It's good. What do you mean? Because it's good. And that's bad. I don't want it. So when that papancha sannyasankha leads to the proliferation of thoughts as we start getting tangled in wanting and not wanting, and the thinking that leads to the desire, the like and the dislike, what I want, what I don't want, and then, you know, hoarding, hanging on to. I mean, it's mine, it's me, it, I, I've earned it. And then them. Envy leads to conflict. And then Saka just said, but how, what do we do about it? And the Buddha talked about a pathway to nipapancha, a pathway to non-proliferation. Notice when we were doing our samadhi training, <clears throat> and even in the first level of jhana, there's still vitaka vichara, thinking. And I encourage this, hey, don't, don't hate thinking. Thinking's a tool. Yes, when thinking's out of control, it, it attacks us and others. But in the first training in samadhi, we were moderating thinking, shortening the thoughts, letting the thoughts dissolve, but the thought itself directs attention. So it's a thought that just directs attention and then dissolves to then receive connection, immediate intimate, direct connection with our reality as it's manifesting, sights and sounds and feelings. And then the Buddha said, in all our behavior, if there's something pleasant or unpleasant or neutral, if we can learn to do it without thinking, it's of a higher quality. Hmm... He's not saying thinking is... I mean, the Buddha used thoughts to communicate. He wasn't beguiled by thoughts. But when we take the construct of thoughts, the language to be reality, then we fit ourselves into all these boxes and life gets very walled off. Here, there, good, bad, me, you. So there is a training in, yes, using thinking. It can be very helpful for reflecting on whether something's skillful or not. The Buddha encouraged that. That if you can think, hey, what is the result of this? If this is going to harm me or someone else, it's good with thoughts to think, hey, let's try not to do this or say this. But then to also learn in while walking and sitting and drinking to... Maybe have a thought to remind you that you're here, but keep letting that thought dissolve so that we can learn to have longer moments of just silently being with. 
Who creates the distinction between here and there, between me and you, between moving and unmoving? It's thought. And believing the thoughts are are realities. A very powerful practice is, is learning to practice, little by little by little, a laying thought. Noticing the gaps between the thoughts. And as we, if we're so used to having the commentary of this is good, this is bad, then it can be scary. But that papancha makes it impossible to know Nibbana because we're generating and living in all these categories that actually we've created. They're not real categories because there aren't any things. Yes, there may be approximations, Everything is in this vibrant flux. And that's the root of suffering because when we take something, as I was speaking last night, to be me and mine, like praise, and we lean on it, that's called upadana, bhava, it's called becoming, jati, it's called birth. Then as that shifts and you get ignored or somebody criticizes us, then we, our world shakes. There's a quick aging and loss and looking for another birth. A famous short discourse in the Dhammapada that I love relating to this principle. There are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. The world delights in conceptual proliferation. Buddhas delight in the ending of that. There are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. There are no permanent conditioned things. Buddhas never waver. Buddha's comparing our mind to a sky. There are no footprints in the sky. There's no ground for it. The vapor trails dissolve. When we touch with our mindfulness and wisdom, the actuality we of things we see that they're shifting, changing, and ungraspable. To believe in the concepts that concretize and make things seem so real, the Buddha said that's like trying to grasp air with our hand. We will reap weariness and disappointment, he says. I'll get it. You won't find the sage out there. The Holy One, even the Buddha himself, his body's out there. But is that the real Buddha? We then generate the sense of the holy stuff is not here, it's somewhere else. Even when one monk 
supposedly was so fond of the Buddha's melodic voice and his golden skin, his curly hair, his graceful moves, his peaceful presence. I think the Buddha just saw this guy just gazing so fondly and he's wondering, it's good to be admiring of the Buddha, but is he getting the message? So the Buddha sent him off to a far-flung monastery. (laughs) And he was, woe is me, or something like that. Woe is me, I've been sent away from the Buddha, and the Buddha, with his powers, heard him and appeared for him and said, what's wrong? He said, what's wrong? Sent away by the Buddha. And the Buddha points to himself and said, do you think this is the Buddha? He pointed to his body. This body comes and goes. He said, when you see the Dharma, when we see into the nature of things, the true empty nature of things, we touch into the real Buddha, the timeless Buddha, the ever-present, always here and now, immediate, welcoming us, magnetically pulling us, because it's our nature. When we try to find the sage out there, that keeps leading to samsara, because whatever we find keeps dissolving. That's endless. Or it's like a yak chasing its tail, the Buddha said. We think we're getting closer. Don't interrupt me, I'm getting closer. (laughs) The famous Sufi saint I I love, a bit of a crazy saint, Nasruddin one day was just gobbling hot chili peppers and he was gasping and crying and just he seemed to be in serious danger of dying. And his disciples said, Nasruddin, Nasruddin, what are you doing? And he said, I'm looking for the sweet one. As we start to get the message, that weariness comes in, and it's a skillful state, the disenchantment. And the key, remember, the key is noticing change. And what's really important, we can't just stop. I mean, we can encourage the mind to stop, but not by force. But we learn to just recognize thoughts and let them be seen as moving through the mind. And notice the gaps between the thoughts and the ending of thoughts. Because each thought arises and ceases back into that ground. Ever-present ground of listening. That which remains, that which moves through like the dust dancing in the unmoving space. No footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. 
the world delights in complexity, conceptual proliferation, the Buddha's delight in the ending of that. No footprints in the sky, you won't find the sage out there. There are no eternal conditioned things. As we see the changing nature, then the idea that there's something to hold on to, you don't even have to make yourself let go. When we realize stuff is so changing, that dispassion arises and there's relinquishment, giving back. That's why the Buddhas never waver. When we grasp, then there's continual wavering as things keep eluding us. When there's letting be and letting go, one rests in the unconditioned, the unmoving, the undying. A great disciple of the Buddha before his awakening, Anuruddha, confessed to the chief disciple of wisdom, Sariputra, he said, My divine eye is unsurpassed. I see the thousand worlds in the subtle realms. My energy is aroused and unsluggish. My mindfulness is unshaken. The body's calm. The heart is concentrated, but I still suffer. And with some dry Theravada scripture or humor, Sariputra says, Friend, Anarumo, that thought that your unsurpassed divine eye seeing the thousandfold world system is connected to your conceit. The thought that your energy is aroused, unsluggish, your mindfulness is unshaken, your body's calm, the heart is concentrated. That is related to your restlessness. That I still suffer, that thought is related to your anxiety. Sariputra said, it would be well if abandoning those three qualities, not attending to them, you turn your mind to the deathless. Okay, Anuruddha was a great practitioner. And he was diligent. His mindfulness was good, his energy, his concentration, his, his third eye had opened, he could see better than anyone else. But if we still are looking for freedom in conditions, that's why it's called restlessness. Still, I've got to do the mindfulness, I've got to do this, I've got to do that. Conditions are by their nature unstable. As Ajahn Chah would say, if we look for stability or security or certainty, If we look for certainty in that which is uncertain, we're bound to suffer. And Aruda was was still squeezing 
conditions wanting them to, to give us release. Say, Puta said, turn your mind to the deathless. Don't, and it's a slight adjustment that we, that's very important for us because remember this deathless is always here and now. It's where all conditions return. It's just a slight adjustment. He said, don't attend to those. Remember Kandanya? He had his breakthrough because he noticed the guests. The guests come and go. We can be so preoccupied with who's coming and going and whether we like them or not. But do we notice what remains? The sounds of my voice are coming and going. But can just a little of our attention notice the unmoving matrix or presence that the sounds well up in and dissolve back into? The thought streams, the feeling tones are moving within this ground. The image that Kundanya helped Kundanya, the dancing dust. We want the dust not to dance, that's called making trouble. We notice that, ah, but the space is not moving, it's not being disturbed. The dust and the space are intermeshed without conflict. Forms and emptiness, emptiness and forms. We have words for them, but. This reality is just as it is. So just as an image, we notice the forms, but our teachers encouraged us to notice the space around forms too. We've come into the meeting and then we'll disperse. The forms come in and dispersed. Just as space is to form and silence is to sound, so is awareness to all phenomena. Every sound is immersed in an unmoving, listening silence. The architect, the great architect of contraction that squeezes our boundless nature into this mood, this problem that we're wrestling with. The Buddha said that's like taking the bubble to be the whole ocean. We take it to be everything. So we start to see change. We realize that thoughts, feelings are arising and ceasing in this ground. What the Buddha called the original brightness. He called that the pure substance of the beginningless awakened Nibbana, the primal essence of consciousness that can bring forth all conditions. 
because of conditions you consider it to be lost. And then living beings lose sight of this original brightness. Therefore, though they use it to the end of their days, they are unaware of it. And without intending to, they enter the various destinies. We get born into happiness and unhappiness when we attach to all these moving conditions. So we're turning around. This is Kuan Yin's meditation, to listen in to this unmoving ground. This is what Sariputra was encouraging Anuruddha to do. So today, we're not dismissing conditions. We're kindly letting them just be. Oh, but I've got to get a little bit some more samadhi. That's a thought, letting that fly through the heart. Notice the thought keeps ending into silence. Noticing the silence around thought. In our meditations, just finding a comfortable posture. His heart is sky-like. And within this sky-like, measureless ground, there's forms appear, forms of sounds that touch the heart and dissolve. There's the sense of the body sitting, a few long breaths can help us return. That long in-breath to refresh the body, that long quiet out-breath to soften the eyes and face and jaws and feel that Mother Earth pulling us. Pressure steadies the heart. But that pressure we notice is pulsing, subtly vibrating. Being at peace with the changing sensations within this quality of awareness, of listening. We don't have to change our practice drastically to contemplate this way. The Buddha said it can be done right with the breathing. We can breathe in and out, just relaxing and noticing change. Just letting whatever sounds or feeling tones, rather than grasping them and chasing them, just letting them flicker and touch the heart. The attention as it moves is changing.
the sounds. We don't have to chase them. We can relax and just perceive that the sounds are doing their thing, vibrating, shifting, appearing, dissolving into the ever-present listening. With every breath we can, what the Buddha calls patinisaga, we can relinquish, we can let go. It's not throwing away, it's softening, it's relaxing, so that the magnetic pull of our own nature, we can just rest in this ground essential ground of listening, which is the mother of all conditions. Like a mother standing behind a child on a swing, the child is facing away from the mother When the child swings back to the mother, she just touches the child, gently embrace, and then letting go as the child swings out. She patiently waits, just knows the child will return, just gently touching as we breathe in and just letting go, a softening on each out-breath, getting the feeling for resting in the awareness. the sensations, the guests, that which touches the heart, the children of the heart. We let them do their thing. They all appear within this unifying ground. If one uses a phrase like let go, Notice the silence after those words, let go, and savor that gap before the next word. Mind that gap. Plumb the mysterious, immeasurable depths of that gap.
Sounds come and go. The breath swells and subsides. But what remains unmoved, ever-present, when we're tangled, contracted around a condition, we can ask the quiet question, who's suffering? Allow that question to dissolve back into the ground of listening. And the awareness quietly contemplates this assumption that it's all happening to me, to you. As we keep recognizing the ephemeral nature of thoughts, letting them keep dissolving, we can still use thought But when we realize how ephemeral they are, little by little we won't be so enchanted, beguiled, mesmerized, misled by thoughts. There are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. Worldly people delight in papancha, conceptual proliferation. Buddhas delight in the ending of that. There are no footprints in the sky. You won't find the sage out there. There are no eternal conditioned things. Buddhas never waver. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.